You're listening to the Science Circle Podcast. It's a nonprofit program serving a global alliance of scientists, science students, science educators, and you. Welcome. Our guest today on the Science Circle Podcast is Dr. Rob Knopp. He's been giving science talks in the virtual world of Second Life and for the Science Circle for more than a decade. He earned his Ph.D. from Caltech in physics, working in infrared astronomy. Then he was a postdoc at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, working with the Supernova Cosmology Project. There he was a core member of one of the teams that discovered that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. And that was a discovery for which the team leader, Saul Perlmutter, would win the Nobel Prize in 2011. Rob was a professor at Vanderbilt until 2007. He then took a couple of years off from academia and worked as an engineer at Linden Lab for two years as Prospero Linden. Some of you might be familiar with that name. He served on the faculty at Quest University, Canada in British Columbia. In 2014, he moved back to the USA and is now an associate professor of physics at Westminster College in Western PA, and that's quite a pedigree, Rob. It's a pleasure to have you here on this podcast. Yeah, thank you. You have so much to share, and there's so little time here to do it, so let's just jump right in. Uh, You mentioned uh, in one of your messages that you divide your presentations into two general categories, the immediate, what's happening now, and the historic Uh, Many of your presentations may look at relatively new developments in science, current breakthroughs and events, and I've seen you present on that. And the other category is the history and foundations of science, helping to increase our understanding. So let's start with some of the foundational topics, including one you are soon to present to the Science Circle audience in Second Life, explaining entropy and for those that are unable to get in world live and catch your presentation let's get a taste of it here just what will you be explaining about entropy well i'm going to start with most people have this idea that entropy is disorder which isn't wrong but it's very imprecise if you think about it Um, entropy is disorder well okay but what does that really mean there's lots of ways you could have disorder I, you know, I, I ask students, I was in a class recently, so what is entropy? And they all say disorder. I say, okay, what does that mean? And then they look at me like, well, why are you even asking? I think a lot of people don't even think beyond that. Like, what does it mean to be disorder? Now, if you take a chemistry class, you start seeing entropy in equations that show up in things like the Carnot cycle and other things like that. Um, but what is entropy? And that's what I'm going to try to get at this talk. Now, it's fairly involved, and I don't think I can do it in just a few minutes. But ultimately, entropy has to do with a number of ways you could rearrange all the particles in a system without changing the nature of that system. So how many ways can I rearrange all of the air molecules in the room I'm sitting in without changing the density and temperature and all that of the air in the room? That is related to entropy. And the more ways you can rearrange something without changing its 
bulk nature, the higher the entropy. Well, I try to think my my sock drawer on that. I throw the socks in, and usually when I put them in, they're nice order. There's my my exercising socks, and there's my sailing socks, and there's my go to work and look like a professor socks. And before you know it, that has gone completely in disarray. And what was nice folded is suddenly <laughs> just yeah. individual well, little socks the, yeah. lying around. Here's the key: is that there's only a few ways you could arrange your socks and have them nicely ordered, right? You could swap the pairs with each other, but if you want to have them all pointing in the same direction and all next to the pairs, there's only a few ways you can do that. There's lots and lots and lots of ways it can be a mess. Uh, and that's why it's a higher entropy state to be a mess is because there's just so many different ways to be a mess. You know, this is the challenge of teaching and presenting these complicated ideas, isn't it? It's to simplify something complex without dumbing it down or missing the key takeaway points. And obviously you do that so well. I've been looking at your some of the other presentation topics. Black hole demographics, what's, what's that about? Demographics, of course. Uh, what I was doing in that talk was talking about what sorts of black holes are out there and what do we know about them. And I started with the notion that there's actually two different things we call black holes that only recently have we become extremely confident that the same thing. One is the black holes that general relativity predicts, um, singularities, event horizons, all of that. And the other is dense, non-light-emitting objects that we see in astronomy. So we've always assumed that the latter is the former, but it could be there's other things that, I mean, that our current physics necessarily doesn't have or doesn't necessarily have, I should say, that could be these dense, dark objects, and they're not actually black holes, but we call them black holes. So I like to distinguish between astrophysical black holes and general relativistic black holes, but of course, recently with LIGO discovering gravitational waves and black holes, the notion that these black holes really are the general relativity things is getting to be a very strong notion. But demographics, we know lots of black holes that are what I call small, you know, only 10 times the mass of the sun. That's not very big, right? I mean, we carry that around in our pocket. And then there's these supermassive black holes, billion times the mass of the sun. Our galaxy has one that's 4 million times the mass of the sun at its core. So that's small for a supermassive black hole. Only very recently have there been papers claiming to discover black holes around 1,000 to 10,000 100,000 solar mass. So that's the kind of thing I was talking about there. What's out there? How do we know? What is the evidence? What are the observations that we see, and how does this relate to general relativity? That's the general overview of that talk. Well, looking at a number of your other topics, this is something you touch on quite a bit. We've got two colliding neutron stars. That was one of your talks, gravitational waves. You've talked about that a couple of times, neutrino yep, oscillations. I've given at least three talks about LIGO because um, that's one of the most exciting things that's happened in astrophysics recently. Could you break uh, that down for us? What, what, what are you talking about? LIGO? LIGO, the, the Laser Interferometric Gravitational Wave Observatory. Yes. That should be LIGO, I guess. But detecting gravitational waves, which has have been predicted for a century, and only a few years ago did we actually see them firsthand. Now, we had seen indirect evidence for them a few decades ago, but a few years ago we saw them firsthand, and it was two 30 solar mass black holes colliding with each other that was the thing that we saw the gravitational waves from. So this is extremely exciting. It got the Nobel Prize within two years, which is... Uh, really fast for getting the Nobel Prize. Um, and so I gave a few different talks about it, one with the original discovery, another one after the Nobel Prize, and then they saw two neutron stars colliding in with each other, and I talked about that as well. We'll be right back. And we're back speaking with Dr. Rob Knopp. He's a physicist at Caltech, 
He was a member on the team that discovered the expanding universe, and he's someone willing to give up some holiday time for the good of science. These podcasts are recorded in advance. Today is New Year's Day, which brings up two points. Well, first of all, kudos to us for working on a holiday to bring more service to the world. Thank you for doing this, Rob. And number (laughs) two... New Year's is the customary day for looking forward with optimism and untainted aspirations for the year. Uh, it's also a cosmological event, isn't it? As we start spinning back towards spring or towards winter, if you're in the southern uh, hemisphere. So what bright lights do you see blinking in the year ahead? Is there something transformational we might uncover this year in the cosmos? Well, The truly transformational stuff is the stuff that we didn't predict ahead of time. I wouldn't predict anything right now. You know, a few years ago, I might have predicted LIGO. Again, I come right back to that. Um, I'm not sure that there's anything right now on the next year horizon that I anticipate being, hey, oh, my goodness, we just discovered this great new thing. But part of the fun is, is that sometimes you find them and those of us outside didn't expect it. So we'll have to wait and see about that. Um, I do anticipate there's a few observatories that are going to be coming online in the next decade. One is the Webb Space Telescope. And you say, wait a minute, it's supposed to launch in three years. But yeah, you know, <laughs> it's been, it's launch date keeps getting pushed back. So sometime in the next decade, it'll go up. And I'm pretty sure we're going to learn things when that is up, um, probably about the first stars. But in the next year, eh, I'm, I'm not really expecting anything huge this year. But we'll see. Well, let's at least hope you're not envisioning anything cataclysmic. We don't have any uh, space chunks hurtling towards Earth that you see uh, possibly impacting us in the next year. No, and actually, frankly, nowadays, I, I lose a lot more sleep about Yellowstone than I do about rocks falling to the earth. <laughs> Yellowstone's going to go, and that's it for North America. So. Yeah, as do I, somebody downwind from it. Uh, uh, not only are you a scientist and uh, certainly a well-credentialed uh, physicist, you are also an educator, which is, this is after my own heart, working very hard in virtual world platforms and using new uh, educational media. You've been doing this for a number of years now. What, what do you see happening with educational technology uh, in the months and years to come, especially as we try to uh, reach out to more and more students around the world? Well, I think it's going to be a, one of these things of two steps forward, one step back. Uh, is is always the case how these go, that what happens is that some sort of new technology comes out, and with us, we're talking about virtual worlds, but if you go back in time, 20, 25 years, it was the World Wide Web was new back then. So when I was in grad school, the World Wide Web was new, and people were thinking, oh my goodness, this could really revolutionize education. Um, And eventually it did, except that not quite in the revolutionary way we saw, and nowadays we don't recognize it as such. So every class that you teach in college probably does something with the web nowadays, even if it's just putting your syllabus online. But when I teach my classes, I, I, will, I have a little web app where students, when they do reading, they uh, have to answer a few questions about the reading, which I then read something like an hour before class, so I get an idea of what they understood and what they didn't understand. So these things have really changed how we teach our classes but it's not exactly what people were envisioning when the web was new. So what I anticipate is that as we finally integrate the technology of virtual worlds and these other streaming and things like that into teaching, it won't take the form that we expected. That, that would be my expectation. 
Well, apart from the impact that it's had on your teaching and your interaction with students, how have these new uh, technologies expanded you and your networking uh, with other scientists in the world and developing your international collegial uh, connections? How has that been impacted by these new technologies? Well, so interestingly, I, I built up a, a whole bunch of connections during the two years I was not in academia. So I was part of an international collaboration with the Supernova Cosmology Project, so I had a whole bunch of contacts from that. Um, when I left Vanderbilt and I worked at Linden Lab for a couple of years, that was about the same time a few other people, Pete Hutt from the uh, Institute for Advanced Study and George Strogovsky from Caltech, were interested in trying to use virtual worlds as a collaboration platform for astronomers. And of course, um, they contacted me because I was very involved in virtual worlds and an astronomer. And, and there were a few other people. Um, Steve McMillan from Drexel, a few other people from a, from a few different places. I apologize to those that I, I didn't just mention. And we created uh, MICA, or MICA, we never agreed on how to pronounce the acronym, the Meta Institute of Computational Astronomy. And we tried to get other astronomers to come in and give uh, seminars. We had this idea that we could be a virtual astronomy department, and people could give seminars that other astronomers could hear without having to travel. And what we found was that the people who weren't interested in virtual worlds already would come and give their talk and we'd never see them again. It was really hard to convince people to get in. However, I did make a whole bunch of connections myself as part of doing that. You know, So when I applied for the job at Quest University Canada, Pete Hutt was one of the guys who wrote a letter of recommendation for me, and I had met him in Second Life. I knew him for a year before I met him face-to-face. -face. So, so just doing that did help build my network. And certainly what we're doing right now, this moment, uh, I have got to meet somebody that I don't think I would have ever met otherwise. Dr. Rob Knopp, who has been our guest today for this episode of the Science Circle. Uh, if you get a chance, check out one of his presentations in Second Life, or you can find some of his Science Circle presentation videos on YouTube. Just search for Rob Knopp, that's R-O-B-K-N-O-P, and you might even watch another Science Circle video or two while you're there. Thank you, Rob. All right, thank you. We uh, look forward to having you back again in the very, very near future, and we will be right, right. back after this break. The Science Circle is a nonprofit program based in the Netherlands with a recording studio here in Southern California. For more information on this podcast and other Science Circle programs, please visit sciencecircle.org. That's sciencecircle.org. This podcast is under Creative Commons license and is freely available for educational use. Until the next time, I'm your host, Stephen Van Hook. Be well.